0: Well, as we um, get going, why don't, I, um, why don't I pray for us as we begin. Sorry, I didn't leave you much chance to chat. There didn't seem to be a huge appetite for the
1: chat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did I not make it clear? You just kind of mumbled. I mumbled. I mumbled. Sorry that I mumbled. That, that was a chance for you to talk. I was standing here awkwardly just waiting. Um, let's, um, let's pray together. Father, as we come to a new series, um, as we uh, look at a letter written to a group of people um, in one sense in a very different situation to us, and yet in another just like us, we pray that you would uh, bring these words to life, that you would help us to see how uh, your word went out to them through the Apostle Paul, and how it sinks deep into our hearts today. Father, please, by your spirit, would you be shaping us and changing us? Please work in me to uh, teach your word clearly. As we all listen to your word being read, we pray that we'd take it in, that we'd learn and grow. And um, Father, we pray that you would uh, shape us and change us and make us the kind of church that you want us to be. Make us, most of all, more like the Lord Jesus Christ his name. Does mm-hmm. um, so everyone have a copy of the service sheet? Um, and, Would you mind uh, grabbing a glass of water? Sorry, I stupidly forgot to yeah, get yeah, one at yeah, the beginning. Yeah. Um, uh, we, as I mentioned in my mumble and in my prayer, uh, we're starting uh, a new series in the letter to the Thessalonians. Um, Thessaloniki is a country in modern-day Greece, and um, uh, Paul was writing to a church that he had planted there as he was travelling through the key kind of major cities of Greece. It's now a very small town, or, or a sort of minor town, but it, then it was a major trading route, and um, Paul was going through and sharing the gospel uh, there. And what we've got on our sheets is a little passage from Acts which describes uh, Paul's few weeks in uh, Thessalon- Thessaloniki, um, I don't know what it was called there, Thessalonica, that's what people call it now. Um And um, uh, yeah, so I'll let Claire read Acts 17 for us. And so that's the context of the last they heard from Paul. And then um, a number of months or years later, uh, Paul writes to them uh, what Gemma's going to read to us. So Claire, why don't you go
1: when Paul and his companions passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining the proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I will proclaim to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of god fearing Greeks, Quite a few common women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, now come here. And Jason was welcoming them into his house. They were all defying Caesar's decrees. Saying there is another king, Lord Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into two in one. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the leaders sent Paul and Silas away to Belia.
2: Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of (coughs) response he gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from
0: and he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming one. Thank you very much. Okay. So I just wanted to zoom in a little bit on that passage from Acts. So Paul was uh, going into this town fresh, and we see in verse two that, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue. Uh, so that's where the Jewish people met. Um, Paul was a Jew uh, and so first of all he went to the people who understood the Old Testament the first half of the Bible and it says there on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah he said so we're told he reasoned with them he was explaining and proving to them And then we're told later on that a mixture of Jews and Greeks, men and women, were persuaded. And I imagine that's the case for um, pretty much all of us here, that we are persuaded that uh, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he had to suffer and to rise from the dead to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with God. And that we were persuaded because someone else reasoned with us. They explained to us the, the message, the nature of why we are sinners in need of a saviour. Why we need rescue. Why God had to come as a man and to live the life that we fail to live. And to die the death that we deserve to die. We are persuaded. But I suppose the question, and it's there at the top of your sheets is, um, is it all just words? I don't know if that, it feels like that sometimes for you. That's, yeah, we've heard, I mean, I, I got a, a little card through uh, the door yesterday from a church, uh, seemingly a very small church that meets in a meeting room in the library, another new little church that started up. And it explained very faithfully, using King James Bible, uh, the gospel message. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, I believe that it's um, encouraging I should get in touch with that pastor and just uh, you know, encourage them um, it's great to see the gospel but it was just words on a page what, what difference does it make how does it change our lives what what does the gospel actually do to us to, to make us any difference and what, does, what actions does it lead to is there really a miraculous transformation by the spirit or is it just words, words that some people reject and other people accept and doesn't seem to make much difference? Maybe you're feeling a little bit like that at the moment. And I was just really encouraged as I was preparing for this and looking afresh at this passage as Paul writes to the Thessalonians that the gospel makes a massive difference. And what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on uh, two, uh, two verses really, uh, verses two and three which talk about a massive theme across the whole of the New Testament, which is the theme of faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Uh, They come up again and again in the New Testament writings. And um, we'll get to see how those three words describe a completely transformed people, transformed by the gospel. And I've called it the title of this um, sermon, Inside Out Church. Um, which is very helpful. It's a, uh, a phrase that Jim was using recently to talk about how we need to think of ourselves that we mustn't rely on a building or um, impressive uh, publicity opportunities, um, but we need to uh, realise that actually God wants to change us from the inside and then send us out, and then to be drawing people back in uh, to meet Him, to hear from Him as we gather as church. So inside out church and. Um, I just want us to look, before we zoom back in on faith, love and hope, at uh, verses 8 to 10. Just have a look with me at verses 8 to 10 at the bottom of your sheets of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. They, that's the people all around the Thessalonians who were so full of joy in the gospel, they tell how you turn, from, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's just look back, actually, at verse, verses 8 to 9. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The gospel turns us inside out, and and that idea of turning to God from idols really is how the gospel turns us inside out. You see, idols are anything that uh, drags us away from God, anything that becomes more important, more significant in our lives than God, and really for all of us, our ultimate idol is ourselves. You see, naturally, each and every one of us is turned inwards on ourselves. You may have heard it before, but I think one of the most helpful ways to realise that we think that the world revolves around us is if you've ever looked at a group photo. If you're in the group photo, who do you look at first? Well, of course, it's you. And what defines whether it's a good photo or a bad photo is whether you look good in that photo. Whether everyone else looks good, unless they look shockingly awful, if you look good, then it's a good photo. Perhaps if they look shockingly awful, then and it's even better, because <laughs> it makes you look better. Well, what about when we go to a party? How do we judge whether it's a good party or not? Is it because we're so absorbed in what everyone else is doing, and whether they're having a good time? If everyone else is having a good time, then that makes us a great party. No, of course, it's all about us. It's our experience of the party that matters most. It's a good party if we enjoy it, and if we don't notice a few people on the sidelines, well, so be it. Because naturally, we are self-absorbed. We're turned inwards, in on ourselves. Naturally, the human heart is a bit like a black hole. You know how black holes, they just suck everything into themselves. And no matter how much popularity, or money, or success, or power, or sex, or approval, whatever the idol is for us, no matter how much we get, it's never quite enough. It just gets sucked in and and we want more and more and we're never quite satisfied. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that the universe centres around him, well that turns us inside out. I quite enjoyed this picture of um, a house uh, with a mural painted on it uh, looking in. And I think that's kind of what we want to dream of as our church, that um, we're getting on with our lives, and yet as people get to look in, they get to see how the gospel turns us inside out, that we end up looking to others' needs, focusing on others more than ourselves. Now to see that, we're going to zoom in on verses 2 and 3, so let's have a look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians on your sheets again. Paul says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We get those three words that I mentioned, faith, love, and hope. And what I'm going to do now as we start is I'm going to quickly go through All of those, and then we're going to come back and dwell on them. So that we can see how the gospel turns us inside out. You see, first and foremost is faith. And faith turns us to Jesus. So we start thinking less about ourselves and more about him. Because he is the centre of the universe. And I don't know if you know, you may be familiar with the fact that the word faith and believe and trust is all one word in the original Greek. So when Paul says... Uh, we thank God for your work produced by faith. He could say your work produced by trust. Trust is a, uh, is a much more sort of graspable word, isn't it? It's a tangible word. We can, we can understand how you can trust a person. Faith seems sort of a bit sort of airy-fairy out there. But when we, when we say we trust someone, we have reasons for trusting them. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're trusting in his saving work. Not in our performance. We're trusting in what He has done, not what we do. Our, our mindset is turned outwards again. We're not worried about whether we've got it right. You see, all other religion is absorbed with itself whether I'm doing enough to get to God. But actually, faith in Jesus Christ means we know we haven't done nearly enough, but we trust in Him, not our own performance. We trust in His promises, not our own feelings. I was talking to Andy before the service and just saying I'm feeling just a bit drained and unmotivated. I'm thinking, how can I stand up and preach on an amazing passage when I'm feeling like that? But actually faith says, you know, our feelings go up and down, up and down, up and down. But his word is secure. He is reliable. I don't need to be absorbed in how I'm feeling. I can be caught up in his promises, in who he is. Faith means we trust in his love and not in our circumstances. He loves us and that love is demonstrated by his death for us on the cross and proven by his resurrection from the dead so that we have new life in him. We are loved, we are precious in his son. And so our circumstances may change, they do change and they're unpredictable we don't know what's even going to happen tomorrow. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's really, really hard. But when faith turns us to Jesus, we're not absorbed in the black hole of me and mine. We're caught up with him. And then love. Love turns us to others. The word love there is self-sacrificial, other-centered love. The love that was modeled for us by Jesus himself. That he didn't think about how he could serve himself. No, he came to serve others. And that love captures us. And we're motivated by it. And instead of being absorbed with what makes me feel good, I become more concerned about others' needs. Less concerned about our own concerns. And so we look to others to care for them. To look out for them. To want to serve them. It's a beautiful thing. And then hope. Hope turns us to the future. You see, if we know that life is not about the here and now, about the short few decades that we've got ahead of us, but about an eternal purpose of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that will go on forever and ever, well, then we think more about the future than our present circumstances our glorious future in the new creation in right relationship with God. And it's based on the rock-solid certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on historical facts. Jesus rose from the dead. And so I don't need to worry about the here and now, the ups and downs, but I have a secure future. Hope turns us to the future. We're turned from the inside That's the gospel. And we get to see in verses 4 and 5 that it's not our own work, but the miraculous gift of the Spirit. You see verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. It's God's work to turn us inside out. Which is why Paul gives thanks, not to them, but to God. This is a lesson to us in so many ways, isn't it? I mean, gratitude to God is one of the best ways to maintain joy in the Christian life. To go back over the facts of the gospel, to read through God's word and constantly thank him for all that he's given us. But also it's it's a great lesson for us in, in how we are encouraged by each other. That we remind ourselves to give thanks for what God has done in each of, and every one of us. And we're going to be thinking about that more as we go back through these points. But actually if we thank God, then it helps us to avoid pride or a sort of sense of hierarchy. Oh, why, why did you thank them and not and not me? Oh, is that because they're more special or something? But if we thank God for the good things that he's doing in our lives, then each of us can take pleasure and delight in God's good work in our hearts, and rather than pride in our own achievements or insecurity in our failures. I think it's a challenge for us to have that prayerful mentality that the Apostle Paul has. He's desperately worried. We'll discover as the letter goes on about these people who he was only with for three or four weeks, who heard the gospel, who seemed so vulnerable as he was kicked out of there in that frenzy that we, that we read about, where um, this mob attacked and he had to leave the city at night. He's desperately worried about that. But first and foremost, his instinct is to pray for them and to give thanks them. I wonder if that's our instinct for one another, to be giving thanks for each other and to be praying for each other. It's certainly a challenge to me. Well, faith, hope and love, they do sound still a little bit sort of spiritual, like the kind of thing you you need to go on a retreat to some sort of monastery somewhere to, to feel that fuzzy, warm feeling of faith, hope and love, don't they? Don't sound very practical. But actually what we're going to do is, is go even deeper and see just how practical they are. Let's see what they produced. Not silent, weird, over spiritualised retreats, but real changed lives. Well back to point one. Faith turns us to Jesus, which leads to work. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 again. Paul says, we always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Work produced by faith. God has a purpose for my life now, and I want to know his purpose for me and to live it out. That's what faith does by trusting in Jesus and not ourselves we want to know his purpose for our money for our time for our holiday plans because before I was a Christian any money or time that I had went into the black hole of me and mine but faith leads to work and so we can thank God as Paul did for all the wonderful things that are going on in this church. For all of those who prioritise serious Bible reading to encourage one another and to have our priorities and our work shaped by God and his priorities. I want to thank God for such a high proportion of this church involved in our gospel communities or in women's Bible study or in one-to-ones these great ways to go deeper to encourage one another to experience community more faith produces the work of listening to Jesus and helping each other to put his word into practice because we trust him we can also thank God for all those at Stratton Central Church who want to see their friends and neighbours and colleagues, even complete strangers, one for Christ. It's such an encouraging thing to hear of that desire. Because in faith we trust that the gospel is God's power for salvation. That's what the Thessalonians believed. you see verse 8? The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. I think one of the most encouraging things when we gather in prayer meetings or in our gospel communities is hearing each other share names. Names of friends or people we've just met. Asking for opportunities to speak of Jesus on a business trip or in a tennis club or on the bus or whatever it is. makes me think back to um, a lady at the church I went to in Oxford who used to take the bus to church. She was a very old lady and she was often offered a lift and her reply would pretty much always be, no thank you I want to take the bus in case I get the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus on my way to church. Wouldn't it be great if we could say of Streatham Central Church verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you Not only in in Streatham and Norbury, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Because we trust in Jesus, He is the centre of our universe. And so we long to point people to Him. I was really encouraged that you don't have to be a, a massive extrovert, you don't have to have huge amounts of kind of social energy for this to be a reality in our lives, for this life transforming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I was told a, a true story this week of a man called Mr. Rigby, who lived the days, in the days before email, and he went on um, business trips to Edinburgh once a month and stayed in a hotel in Edinburgh, and when he did, he always tried to invite someone along to church with him, either at breakfast in the hotel or out on the street, as he went to uh, a church that wasn't his home church. Um, uh, but that he attended each, each time he was there on business. And after many, 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 many months of inviting someone every time, um, there, was a, there was a guy who said yes, uh, other people had been with him. Um, but at the end of the service, he seemed so interested in the gospel that he heard, he said, can I, can I come back again? And um, Mr. Rigby knew that there was an evening service, and so he came... Uh, to the evening service as well and at the end of the evening service he heard the gospel message and he said "I, I want to put my trust in Christ and so Mr. Rigby was able to sit and pray with this man and lead him to Christ and because he'd done that this very introverted shy man Mr. Rigby thought well I better go and meet with the pastor to tell him that there's a man in Edinburgh who's put his trust in Christ and it'd be great to follow up with him and so he went to, to meet with the pastor and he explained that, to his knowledge, this was the only person who'd ever come to Christ through his endeavours. And he was excited that he wondered if the church would be able to follow up. And the pastor said, oh, you're Mr. Rigby. And he went back into the cupboard and he pulled out a file with letter after letter after letter from people who'd written in to say, do you know this Mr. Rigby who invited me to hear the gospel at your church? and of stories of people who put their trust in Christ. There's a very introverted, non-expressive guy who just persistently decided that Jesus is worth telling people about. And in his own quiet little way did so month in, month out in this church and presumably in his home church as well. Well, faith in Jesus Christ by His Spirit transforms us. And it transforms us not only to love the Lord Jesus, but because we love the Lord Jesus to love others. And so, secondly, love turns us to others and leads to labor. You see verse two and three again. We always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love. It seems the difference between work and labour here is that work is kind of all of life and labour seems to be similar but more about specific action. The idea that real love produces more than just an emotion, a fuzzy feeling. It leads to action, the kind of thing that Ed was talking about a couple of weeks ago. On his sermon on compassion, which I found so helpful. And it seems that the kind of love in action that the Thessalonians were able to live out was, as people have often cheesily said, is caught rather than taught. Have you ever heard that phrase? Um, The kind of love that we learn to live out as Christians is caught rather than taught, as in we learn it from each other rather than just having it sort of imposed on us by reading it in the Bible. And so you see at the end of verse 5, you see verse 5? Paul says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of the gospel, of Jesus' love for us, that we see lived out in others, that transforms us to then go on to serve and love others ourselves. And I want to thank God and praise God for the way that kind of love is going to work in this church. And just praise God for the many of you involved in organising and and leading different activities here, Uh, most of them not official activities some of them just involved in serving on teams, in, in crash or set up and clear up. Things that we'd never choose to do. But we do it out of love for each other. I praise God for the unseen work of many caring for each other in the hard times. Meeting up, challenging each other. Plucking up the courage to say the hard truth that then leads us back to the gospel giving of ourselves practically, serving each other. You hear stories of people cooking for each other, or just um, being a shoulder to cry on. I praise God for the money that people give, out of love for others and the gospel work that will benefit the ministry here. Most of that is anonymous and unseen, but collectively it is seen. And it's real and it's practical. As people see that this church is growing and is working together through the sacrificial service of each and every member. And we see that in verse 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out through you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you get. Another little cheesy phrase I learned is that we need not just more salesmen, but samples. You know, the idea of salesmen going round and, and telling people, oh, you must uh, buy this product. It's so much more persuasive if you actually see it sampled. If you can actually get a sort of Visible picture of the thing they're trying to sell and realize this works. And each of our lives are those kind of samples. And it seems that was what was happening with the Thessalonians. The message was ringing out from them because people saw the changed lives. And so others were talking about it. The salesmen were the non Christians reporting what a transformation was going on. And this Reminds me of a very significant verse. Really, one of the most important verses for us to take hold of as church. Paul was teaching the same thing. But in John 13, 34-35, Jesus said, before he went to be crucified, he said to his disciples, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know, that you are my disciples if you love one another. We need not just more salesmen, but samples. The cross tells us how to serve. The way the Lord Jesus served us in full self-sacrifice, in a costly, self-giving way, is how we are to serve one another. I think so often we can feel, oh, it just doesn't feel like there's a huge amount of community at the moment at church. It just doesn't seem to come naturally. It just doesn't, just doesn't feel like we're kind of gelling as we should. If we're expecting it just to be a kind of natural thing to us, then we actually haven't really understood the gospel. Jesus wasn't sitting there in the heavenly realms with his Father and the Holy Spirit thinking, you know, I just, I just kind of feel like paying a trip to earth and just wandering through and and just kind of seeing how it goes and then sort of wandered around and thought, oh, these (coughs) people are so lovely. There's just so natural community here. He gave himself. He served. He gave his life to rescue and transform those who would trust in him. And if we really understand the gospel, then we will serve sacrificially. And we need to ask ourselves, how much of a servant am I? among the brothers and sisters that God has given me? How much would people know that I am the Lord Jesus' disciple because I love the brothers and sisters that I've been given? Do I come to church with the attitude of what church can do for me or what I can do for others at church? Do I assess the success of the church community by how much it's helped me or how much of a buzz I feel or how lifted I am or what opportunity I have to give myself to serve others, to lift them up, to care for their needs. Because so often we actually feel much more joy ourselves when we get the opportunity to help and shape others. And yet it's so easy to get sucked back into that cycle of self-absorption rather than other person sentiments. And so when I'm deciding if it's worth prioritizing church or a gospel community or a one-to-one this week, do I think in terms of how much it would help me if I went to it? What a boost I would get. Or do I think in terms of how I could love and help others and serve them? You know, we can always catch up Personally, on say a study or a sermon theoretically if it goes up onto the web but the people that miss out on us won't be able to catch up on the encouragement that it would have been of having me there and so it's costly who is there here that I can serve who is there not here who's on their own why aren't they here maybe they're on holiday and that's a wonderful thing and I can celebrate with them when they get back but maybe they're away because they're feeling despondent because they're not feeling part of it because they're not feeling included maybe that's how I am feeling. but I could give myself to them to serve them to draw them in to invite them around we each need to be doing this because otherwise well no one will see it Verse 35, by this, uh, sorry, on the the screen, second half of that quote on the screen. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you love one another. And the way Jesus served us was so radical, so self-giving. How can we think of more radical ways that perhaps we could serve? Perhaps with our income, our salaries. Perhaps... The amount that we're living on now. Could could I live on 90% of what I'm living on at the moment? 80%, 70%, 60%, 50%, 40%? Could I cut down and then give and serve others with that? With my house, could I use my spare room or change my sofa into a sofa bed to put someone up who might need it? With my holidays, could I spare... A week to, to spend time with those who are in need here. To serve someone whose uh, English isn't their first language and they need some help or support, or just, you know, they can't afford to go away on holiday, so I'll stay here and, and, and take them and show them around London, you know, as we, uh, as we benefit from people coming internationally. Could we, could we give our time in that way? Or maybe going to serve on a, on a kid's summer camp. I went on summer camps as a a kid, and it was just such an amazing witness, especially when the leaders of the groups that I was in weren't a vicar or a teacher or something. They were a normal person. Because I remember thinking that, wow, they've given up one of their four or five weeks a year to serve me with my job. Could I refuse that promotion? Could I just take that step back? Not in terms of working hard. I need to work hard... Um, to be a good witness. But maybe apply for a less important job, forfeit, status, money, prestige, so I've got more time to serve others. Is that the way we think? Or do we always think of our own career advancements? Do we think of how we can love and witness to our colleagues in work? Or are we always thinking about our own circumstances, our own job situation, our own worries. How am I using my lunch times? Could I find the colleague who's, who's feeling lonely, left on the sidelines, and offer to take them for lunch to boost their day, to get to know them better? Jesus has served me more than I could ever imagine. And he says, a new command I give you love one another as I've loved you. So you must love one another by this everyone will know, that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the way we love each other practically is a great witness to others. And it is shaped by the reality that this life is only short, that we are not scraping around to try and get as much meaning out of this life as we possibly can for our own career advancements, for our own success. No, the true reality that we have is the future. And hope turns us to the future. And that leads to endurance. Do you see that back in verses 2 and 3 again? Paul says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance... Inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That word endurance means literally pushing forward against the wind. And so I've put a picture up here of uh, a sailing crew on a high speed yacht. um, Pushing forward against the wind. Now they obviously know exactly where they're going. They're on a race and they're all working together to get there. You see, if they were just out for a nice sail, there's no way they'd push up against the wind. They'd just change their course and let the wind be behind them and blow them wherever they wanted to go, just for a nice sort of dabble in the water. But we know our destination. We know where we're heading. We need to have our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and that he came to rescue us from this short life, this life that is ending inevitably in death. So that we can join him on his rescue mission. Really, I, I should have put a lifeboat on, but obviously they don't have sails on them these days, which is a good thing. Um, but we should be there like, like crew on a lifeboat. Thinking, Lord Jesus, you came here. You're the boat. You're the one who came to rescue. Please show me how I can live wholeheartedly for you to bring others into that boat. We're heading on a rescue mission, but we're also heading for a glorious, secure, certain future. Now these Thessalonians, we know just from that little bit that Claire read to us in Acts, were suffering terribly. Even within their first three or four weeks of being a Christian, they experienced the man who shared the gospel with them being kicked out and pushed out, and there was mobs, and, and, and the guy who hosted the church was put on trial for, for, for proclaiming that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. And yet, Paul thanks God for their endurance. And actually... I want to thank God for the endurance of you guys. Of course, we have it much, much easier in practical terms than they did. But starting a new church plant is not easy. There are so many ups and downs. And yet it's so encouraging to hear you persevere with the costly grind of serving each other, of, of evangelism, of witnessing, to to friends or colleagues or people you meet on the street, even when so often, humanly speaking, there is no apparent fruit. People just don't seem to be interested. It feels like there's such a spiritual battle out there. Sometimes we meet with hostility or just being sidelined. And yet we persevere because we have the rock-solid hope. You persevere because you know the reality of heaven and hell and you love people enough to tell them about the Lord Jesus so that they too might know Jesus for all eternity. I thank God for those of you here who keep going in your faith, even when friends and family, even those closest to you, would, would rather you didn't. That's endurance inspired by the certain hope of Jesus' return. I thank God for those of you who persevere in, in reading the Bible daily in your in your quiet times taking that time out to seek the Lord, to get to know him better with your, with your families, even when it's busy and messy. We need to spur each other on in that. We keep going because we have in mind the end. And especially I think I want to thank God for the examples and encouragement of those who, who don't feel encouraged. But you are a massive encouragement to others those of you who are going through very, very painful times, perhaps just longing for the Revelation 21 promise of no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, when God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes, when we will just know that intimacy with him. And that's just the one thing we're holding on to. And yet I want to thank God for when you've let me or others into that painful situation and let us minister to you. You don't perhaps feel like God is using you, but He really is. And I just want to thank God for those of you who persevere when just when there's a job to be done, however many times, hoovered this floor or stacked the chairs or sorted out songs or sorted out the crash or whatever it is just dealt with the hassle of, 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 of being a small church. Because you're not thinking so much of how does this suit me? But how do I serve Jesus and his people flat out in the light of his future return? And that's a wonderful witness to the world around us, verse 9 10. They tell of how you turn to God from idols... Serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I'm going to, be able to spend more time on that second half of chapter one. But I just want to zoom in on the word wait there, verse 10, and wait for his Son from heaven. That word wait is not sit around, kind of wondering, but it's waiting expectantly, actively prayerfully it's waiting that is expressed in in active prayer it's where we need to be prioritising the prayer meeting or meeting up to pray with one another because we believe that God is sovereign that he's the one who's in control not us we want to call on him in our prayer times to shape our priorities to empower our ministries inside out church don't we want to be like this don't we want to be like the Thessalonians it's actually such a positive letter because they're such a wonderful example and we need to remember that we're not to be self-absorbed as if our assurance can only be found by looking within no our confidence and assurance comes from looking to Jesus it's not a question of what we can see but actually others can see the difference in us Maybe it's worth, just as a response to this, as part of following up on this, as, as when we speak the, the truth into each other's lives, just asking that question, can you see that work in me? And allow people to encourage you and praise God for you. But also, I want us to just look at that verse that's at the bottom of your sheets. One Thessalonians has been often called the more and more letter, for obvious reasons as we read this verse. Let me read it. Finally, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. I praise God for this church. I praise God for your faith, for your love, for your hope. And yet have we reached a plateau? Have we kind of, hit a level where we think we're comfortable with? Or are we willing to listen to the urge of the Apostle Paul and of each other to do so more and more? Don't we want to be this kind of inside out church, so transformed by the gospel that others would begin to see it? Well, let me ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more more. And more. Let's pray. Our oh, Father, we thank you so much that the words that you have given us are not just words, they're not just information to be uh, believed as a matter of preference. But life transforming truth. That trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything and leads us to work hard, listening to Him and living for Him. It leads us to love each other sacrificially and it leads us to endure with our eyes fixed on that future hope that we have in Him. And so we plead with you that you would make that difference even this week, that we would do so more and more this week. Spur each other on more and more to live for you, to delight in you, to allow others to see transformed lives in your name.